0: So, do you, have you had much success working with digital agencies in the past? Well, as you know, I had an agent, I had a digital agency, and since I sold that, I've come to understand how rare a beast that was because I could totally rely on it to do all of my own digital work. And it's uh, it's it's tricky to find a really high quality digital agencies. I use a couple, but uh, it's not a simple process to find a good one.
1: And for the rest of us who don't own agencies like you do or did, it is really hard. And we were, we've been super lucky to find and work with the superstars at Digital Minds Group for almost a decade, actually, and they have helped us scale the business. I think we we're probably doing about $20 million bucks at the time in sales, and we're obviously almost at a billion now. And the main difference between Digital Minds and other agencies is Digital Minds are really well-structured to take on your own business's KPIs. They essentially act as an extension of your own internal team. And that allows DMG to scale as you grow your business. So whether you're spending a few hundred thousand dollars a month on digital marketing or even a few million, Digital Minds have the best specialists in digital media to supercharge your growth. And their client base really speaks for themselves. They work with Gumtree, Cars Guide, News, Merry People, Blue Thumb, and of course they work with us at Luxury Escapes. So if you're keen to have a chat with them, I know they'll be super happy to look after any Contrarians listeners and even conduct an audit of all your paid media. So go to Digital Minds Group dot and click on the big orange button to book a strategy call with the team. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor, and I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman. Executive Chairman of Catapult Sports and Serial Investor. In today's episode, we talk about the rise and maybe fall of Atlassian, Nike and the new sneaker wars, and the benefits and downsides of strategic partnerships. Episode 23, Michael Jordan's number, appropriate for what we're about to start speaking about in a few minutes, I dear. So welcome. Uh, You look lovely today. I think you just had a haircut.
0: This is my level of commitment to this podcast and to you, I raced here after my haircut and arranged my haircut so that it wouldn't run late. Of course, I would always be at least 10 minutes late because that's (laughs) within my, like, I was going to say my being on time is plus or minus 10 minutes, but realistically, has it ever been minus 10 minutes?
1: (laughs) It's always, it's always plus 10 minutes. Well, I'm in, I'm in Fiji and I I expected it to be pretty bad because January sort of is the start of wet season, but... It's been amazing. I'm looking out the window now. It's beautiful blue skies. The only time it's really rained is overnight. So it's been one of those perfect, really lucky weeks. So Fiji, and think about, I, I love Fiji. We've been here, I think, probably about seven times in eight years, I think. I'm not sure. Have you been to Fiji much? Never been. Never been. We definitely
0: Never, never been, been to Fiji. Never been to Bali. No, because <laughs> I like cities I like ci- or towns. But what I don't like is a place that you go and you get there and you unpack your stuff and then you get on a chair or something next to a pool and then now you've pretty much had an insight into what your next seven days are going to be like. That is not the kind of holiday for me. I do not like that at all. So that's why I haven't been there.
1: So clearly you're not a very good Luxury Escapes customer. But I think just on Fiji, I think you should come to Fiji. The Fijian people are the most welcoming, hospitable, lovely people you'll ever you'll ever meet. Uh, so that's one thing. The other interesting thing about Fiji and is that – there's always been some political strife in Fiji over the years. But one really interesting thing is they've done a really good job of owning their own tourism resources. Which I Actually, I don't know if this exists anywhere else in the world, but I think most, not most, but a lot of the hotels uh, in the main part of Fiji, so Nandi you may have heard of Denarau, which is sort of the, the main touristy place, about half an hour from Nandi Airport, where most Australians often do go. Uh, and most of the, yeah. I'm saying inter- intercontinental, uh, which is also this way, so... Yeah, so most of the resorts are owned by I think, the Fiji Provident Fund, which is their equivalent of like a future fund. So that's superannuation type thing. So it's, the resort's are actually owned by the, the Fijian people and Fiji Airways is also owned by, I think, the Fijian people. So uh, you come here, the Fiji Airways experience is incredible. The people are so lovely. It's it's very different, to <laughs> certainly different to the American airlines and, and probably quite different to, to some of the other airlines, the Qantas's and, and this, this world probably, but, um, but the... the it's, it's just a tourism driven country and they're so welcoming. So, it's And from the moment you step on the plane, it's just, it's just that's how the mentality is. And it, you very rarely see people who don't like coming. I'd love, I think we'll, take, we'll get you here and get to see for yourself. But um, I'm sure many of our listeners have come. Uh, but this is it, it's such a lovely place because the people make it so lovely.
0: Well, it sounds great. I know lots of people have been there and I've only heard good things about it. I heard the food is not incredible but I've heard everything else is fantastic.
1: Yeah, the food's not as good as like a bath. So Bali, you've got unbelievable food, for example, and Maldives. And Thailand, I think is probably – I don't think Thailand versus Fiji is that much of a difference. Uh, Thailand food's hit and miss and Fiji food's hit miss. Like we often go to places where Jean-Michel, uh, we didn't this time because we couldn't quite get there in time, but that food's incredible. If you go to high-end places like Bomo, Kokomo, uh, Como, the food is Michelin star. So you do get some really good food, but, yeah, the average food may be not as good. So it's that's, that's a fair point to make. It's not barley, which has next-level food.
0: Very good. Now I've got a few things for you at the front end of this episode. You ready? I'm ready. One is I've got the joke of the week. You're not going to laugh by this joke. It's more of a sarcastic <laughs> joke of the week, which is Penny Wong giving money to Unruh and making them promise not to spend it for terrorism. I think we all know UNRWA is basically an arm of Hamas, effectively. So I thought that was particularly amusing. And I just was trying to picture that interaction where she sits down with this person at Unra, and who is effectively, you can imagine, that there is a hand of a Hamas terrorist like up the backside probably of this UNRWA person as they're speaking, control- like a little puppet. And um, and she's saying, well, I will give you this $6 million from the Australian people, but you've got to promise – not to spend it on terrorism, and by the time that last word has left her mouth, it's already gone to rockets. It's already been <laughs> the spent. Been fine. So, yeah, that to me is the joke of the week—not <laughs> a funny joke. No, no. And on the topic of broadly the Middle East, I wanted to give you a very strange shout out, which is not to an individual, but do you know that we've got some people on our LinkedIn page who are presumably listeners, but based on what it looks like, from Erbil. Do you know where that is? I'm not familiar with Erbil. Um, inform me. So Erbil is in the north of Iraq, and I would call it Iraqi Kurdistan. Okay. Yeah. So that they, these people are most likely Kurds. Great to
1: have some Kurdish listeners.
0: We do, and so this is you know the selective, the selective k- global concern that Westerners have. While everyone is focused on the Palestinians having a state, which, as you know, I'm very supportive of, no one seems to care about the Kurds having their own state, but you know, they're no less deserving than any other people of having their own independent place. And anything that I say that's factually accurate about this is largely courtesy of another Adam, who is also a contrarian, I should add, which is, I don't want you to feel jealous about this, but it's Adam Goodwack, who's my original business partner out of Global Reviews, and he's really probably my clo- one of my very closest friends. I think he's got master's degree in like Islamic studies or something like that. He's, ve- he's very smart and sophisticated and is a much better macro investor than I am, I should add.
1: I think the Kurds have been great friends of the West and, and democracy. So uh, one of the great people and, and I think meant to be a, a super lovely, gentle people as well. And just, uh, Adil, we, I think you ran a poll on, on LinkedIn. I think you, you, you're a fan of LinkedIn, I understand. So how did, how did this poll go?
0: Well, I'm not a fan of the user experience of LinkedIn as somebody who's trying to manage content there but it is it's been it's been fantastic for this podcast so I ran a poll after our conversation a few weeks ago a couple of weeks ago about strategic partnerships that we spoke about I ran a poll which basically said in your career you know if you've had involvement with strategic partnerships including including investments did it deliver as you'd hoped or has your experience been that strategic partners have delivered as you've hoped And these were the – have you seen these results or not? I have. All right. So I can't quiz you on them. But they were not shocking to me, and they were maybe a bit less depressing than I was hoping for. So so 11% said, it's definitely delivered as hoped. And I should say here, there were like circa 100 responses. So that's good enough. That's a good sample. So 11% said, yeah, it delivered as I had hoped for, definitely. And so what I thought is – I want to meet those 11% of people because that is a much better strategic outcome than I think I've ever had with any partnership that I've engaged in.
1: So can you just give an example,
0: just for listeners, what's an example of a strategic
1: partnership that you have engaged in that has worked or hasn't worked? Because you're talking about this like everybody knows it, but I think a lot of people don't know actually know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, so I'll give you an example of a strategic partnership that I tried to do very early in my career, and, the, and maybe that was the first step in the long and cynical journey that I've endured with respect to strategic partnerships. So I was running global reviews with Adam, who we just spoke about, and there was a company that reached out to us and it was a consulting business from South Africa that was setting up in Australia. It was a big consulting business. And they said, we want to do this deal with you. We'll roll out all of your staff. As we grow in Australia, you'll grow even more. We were a small business and like a few million dollars of consulting revenue and so we we were so excited about it. And like this, the guy who was running the company in South Africa came out to Australia and we met with him and we put all this time and effort into it. And basically, this company in Australia did not get any traction. <laughs> they largely, they did like <laughs> these two years of a big bang and, rolled, and then they basically quit. And really, I'm not sure we got anything out of that whatsoever, um, except for having to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and then a lot of disappointment. And that is pretty typical of the experience that I've had with strategic partnerships. Now, they're not all like that and they're not universally like that, but it's just an example. When I think about strategic partnerships, I think about companies that come to you that are typically much larger than you are, that can be of equals. I'm not talking about, you know, you're doing a deal with a small startup as a much bigger company. I'm talking about these companies that come to you and they say let's team up and let's do this together and it's going to be amazing for both of our organizations my experience with those is they just never they never deliver that's my and I'm not talking about you doing a deal with virgin because that to me is that, that's a commercial arrangement that's not a strategic partnership yeah it's an affiliate it's more of an affiliate
1: partnership i think i think you're right i think the issue with call strategic partnerships is because you don't have alignment of equity and there's different ownership, they never break down because people want different things. It reminds me of uh, my friend Ash Medalia, who, who's listening to the show, he was uh, he had this great um, uh, view on when you we were single and somebody was setting you up. And say so someone's setting you up, there's a sort of two people getting set up. Someone's doing someone the favor. So right. Who's been done the yeah. favor? Uh, is it is it you've been done the favour, or is the other person being done the favour? Uh, and I think strategy partnership is a bit like that. Like somebody's been done the favour, and when somebody's been done a favour, it doesn't work. Yes. Like there's, there's always and, and if and this will, will um, any partnership if any partnership is too one-sided in terms of commercial results or, or power, I think it just doesn't work. So you need a really balanced partnership for it to work, where both parties are are, are winning. we we'll and we're going to talk about
0: well, that's, in a second, classic- that's a great point. That's a great point. That each it has to be very clear. That not only is the partner seeking to get their own outcomes from this, because I think that's the most important thing is first to understand what they're trying to achieve. But the best partnerships I imagine, because I haven't really had this experience, would be where the success of the smaller company is integral to the successful outcome of the larger company. It doesn't work if the smaller company is not also successful, and I think that was possibly my mistake historically when I went through these. And like as Cat- as catapult, you know, being involved with catapult, it's much easier to do partnerships because generally the companies we're doing them with are smaller companies than us, and occasionally they're larger, but it's much clearer what we're doing. I'm talking more, you know, it's it's most fraught when you're a when you're a small company. So eleven percent said definitely the partnerships had worked, and then what I did is I put two positives and two negatives because, you know, I spent some of my life in market research and so you don't want to give a middle option like that. Everyone just kind of picks the middle option where they can. So you try to avoid a middle option. So the next one down was on, like this is, remember this is have strategic partnerships delivered as hoped on balance. Yes. That was another 33%. So 44% are in the positive side of the equation. Most of whom are in the somewhat positive side the next one down is, you know, has this delivered as hoped? Probably not was my answer. So when I think about it, this probably didn't deliver. That was almost half of people. That was 47%. And I would, say, and the bottom one was it was a complete waste of time, 9%. And so I think what you've got is circa 10% saying amazing and 10% saying it's a complete disaster. And then you've got the bulk, unsurprisingly, in the middle. But basically half of the people are saying, when I think about strategic partnerships, they probably didn't deliver the way I was hoping. That's where I would put myself. Like, I'm not allergic to them, but I just find them, I've been disappointed by them. And my takeaway from this, my takeaways from this are that my experience is 50% of the population's experience with strategic partnerships. And that means, and this is maybe particularly true for founders or people involved in smaller size businesses. If you're going to do a strategic partnership and you're excited about it, then you need to approach it carefully and you need to say, what am I trying to get out of it? Is the partner going to feel like they've succeeded only if I succeed? Like is their success linked to my success? What's a reasonable amount of resource for me to put into this opportunity? And this is the last thing that I've learned, which I think is kind of the most important way I think about deals in general now or or new initiatives or new products. If It fails. Let's imagine that it has failed. And now let's write down why it's failed. Let's think through what the reasons for failure are likely to have been. And if you're able to elucidate why you think this partnership will have failed, if it failed, there's a much better chance you can avoid those risks of failure to begin with. Or alternatively, you can say, it's pretty obvious that this is most likely to fail. I can see all the reasons this is going to fail. So maybe we should look for a different kind of partnership. So yeah I thought I thought that was a pretty cool poll I liked it and I can as I said I can see all the names I'm not I'm not sharing the names but certainly um lots of people whose names I recognize and are, are quite high profile people they were in the bottom part of like you know the this didn't deliver as I had hoped for kind of um, part of the thing. I thought it was a great
1: poll, and I, I, I did a bit of research as you for our, our segment in a few minutes uh, about sneakers. And there's probably a bit of cognitive bias happening, recency bias happening here. But if you think of possibly the best, if not the best, one of the best strategic partnerships ever, has to be the Michael Jordan Nike partnership. Uh, and the Choir Guys going to great detail, and the movie Air obviously covers it. There's obviously a bit of conjecture on how much of Air is accurate, but that the overriding sort of premise of air was right. Obviously, the, Rob Strauss probably did the deal more than Sonny um, Vasco, but but the premise of air was right in that Michael Jordan was sort of a third-ranked um, pick from 83, uh, was was going to be a talent, but wasn't a LeBron-style talent. So it wasn't that prodigy that was a guaranteed success. He was obviously picked after, I think, a large one, and there was another guy. I forget the, I forget the other guy I was picked before him. Uh, but Jordan wasn't a slam dunk, and he wanted to go to Adidas and Nike gave him this crazy offer. So Nike was struggling. So Nike had IPO'd a few years before, really successfully. Uh, and by the time they were speaking to Jordan, the business had, was really struggling because the running boom had come off. So the share price was down, and, and there was there was conjecture on whether they're going to shut the basketball division. Uh, and Rob Strausser, who, who passed away really young, sadly, but did this deal with Jordan. He was really the architect of, of Nike's um, courts endorsement practices, which really created the business uh, or grew the business. Uh, but Jordan took essentially 5% royalties on every Nike sneaker sold, not just Air Jordans, this is every sneaker in the whole basketball division uh, and was probably the most – so Nike's now $150 billion business. We'll talk about that more in a, in a few minutes. But Jordan now makes $300 million a year from Air Jordans. And Nike's itself, I think – so I think Jordan will make about three billion over his lifetime from this, and Nike has probably created a hundred billion in share, if not more, a hundred billion dollars in shareholder value from this whole Air Jordan partnership.
0: So, what, so the reason you call it a partnership as opposed to a commercial deal is the commercial deal might have been the sponsorship of Michael Jordan as an athlete to wear Nike, but where they took it further with the Jordan brand. That's what you're referring to as a commercial part, as a strategic partnership, which I agree with. Something that you may or may not know that I happen to know because I float Absolutely. around this industry is, at some point, they decided to take the you know the Jordan brand is extremely popular with Gen Z today, and at some point they decided to take the Jordan brand beyond basketball, and it's now a brand they use heavily for American football, for example, in the U.S. And I know that at the time they decided to do that. They did renegotiate, or what I understand to be the case, but from reliable sources, is that they did engage in some renegotiation of the terms with Jordan at that point in time because, you know, expanding it beyond basketball completely changes the nature of or alters the nature of the relationship that they had agreed on with that partnership. But it is it is a completely remarkable brand story, that Jordan brand, and, you know, it's it's unbelievable. And we should say, you know, well, I should say, just to remind you, the reason I put this poll up is because of how fantastic I thought about how, how fantastically I felt about the Lime Uber partnership and how good I thought that was as a partnership to grow Lime and to expand Uber. But at some point, it would be interesting to ask somebody from Lime and/or Uber, although they probably won't say it on the record, whether they felt like that was a great strategic partnership. Because I think it was; I think it created the winner in the category. But um, but it will be interesting to know what they felt about it. And I just want to close out with one last comment about. Lime and how you ruined my life um, and made me feel terrible about myself. So, do you remember? Do you remember? I was so excited about using the Uber app when I, we were talking about Lime. I just I thought I was just like so smart and it was so perfect, and that's why I use it. And you were like, you know, you can buy these passes, and I was like, can you? <laughs> and then I went into the Lime app for my subsequent booking. And I realized that actually I was a total moron to be booking this through the Uber app. And Uber introduced me to Lime and has made me <laughs> use it. But actually, from now on, or subsequently, I've just used it through the Lime app. I'm not sure if it's cheaper on a casual basis. It possibly is, but it's certainly dramatically cheaper when you buy the day passes. But I will add this, and somebody can like send us a message and explain this if they like. But they they have they c- took the casual use, and then they created this really simple pass, which is smart, right? You can use a certain number of minutes within a certain amount of time. Yeah, it's very smart. passes. But then they've got this Prime membership, which now everyone's calling everything Prime, right? So they've got – or Prime or Plus, they're the only two things people call anything except Kogan. They call it first. Um, And so they've got this Prime, and I can't for the life of me work out what the benefit is, and they've even got a section that says – can you use Prime with the passes? And it's got this answer, and I couldn't even make sense of the answer from their answer. And so I think, you know, they've gone to this kind of place of overcomplication with their, with their model, which, you know.
1: I actually – I, I subscribed to that Prime Plus thing originally. I think I still got it. I think, the only – you definitely get cheaper rates for casual, but obviously I don't use casual rates, so that's, that's meaningless. But you also do get to reserve – the bike for half an hour. Yes, I saw minutes. that. It's actually quite handy.
0: That to me seemed like the main benefit, but it was like some number of dollars a month. and Six bucks or something. What I thought is, if I sign up to this, then my lifetime value as a customer will be the number of months I've got left until I die, and maybe even beyond that, <laughs> because I never cancel anything. That's my problem. Yeah, I need to go 100%. through and cancel stuff. So Now I'm so hesitant to sign up to anything. In fact, I sent a message to I know you want to get onto the next topic, but once I get started, then I'm on a roll. But like, so I said, so you know, there's a publication called Capital Brief that's been launched by Chris Jantz, who was formerly at Nine.
1: Oh, Chris, good guy.
0: Okay, yeah, well, I really like Chris. I know that you know him. I don't know him, but um, I do know Mike Sneesby, who's the guy that got the the gig running Nine, and I think he's a great guy. So there you go. We can compete on those two people. And, in terms of people we know that were from nine and one still is. Anyway, so I, so I sent a message. Mike, of course, the former CEO of Kudo. Yes, correct. Which we bought. Correct. Oh, you bought Kudo. Yeah. Did you deal with him when you bought Kudo?
1: Yeah, he was the outgoing CEO. So he was super helpful. He's such uh, a he did a really
0: good handover. He's such yeah, really a, handover. a modest down-to-earth person. Anyway, I don't want to rave about him, but really yeah. you, you could not have – like what a change in the TV industry that you went from these big – quite nasty, arrogant personalities to someone like Mike, who's exceptionally capable, built Stan, and is just so enjoyable to spend time with and deal with. Anyway, not to digress, but I said, so talking about subscriptions, I sent this message to Capital Brief because they had posted something probably on LinkedIn and they had actually profi- they actually undertook a lot of coverage of my court case, which I won't talk about here <laughs> without ever talking to me. And so I sent a message to their linked a comment to their LinkedIn post saying, your content seems really good. But without knowing, I'm not going to sign up for twenty dollars a month or thirty dollars a month or whatever it is to sign up to it. You should just make copy the financial review in the Australian and make it super cheap for three months. And they sent me an email, you know engaging me personally and like being very nice to me about it from from one of the founders. But don't you think that is the way to get people hooked? You've got to just make the first three months unbelievably yeah, cheap and then people forget about it and it renews yeah. automatically and then they've got the content and then that's the best chance of people not wanting to give up content.
1: Well, Chris knows paywalls because he did the Fairfax transition to paywall uh, while he was running the newspaper. So he's no by I'm surprised they're not doing that. Um, I remember Stephen May when he was running Crikey had, did, did a slightly different way and I really liked how Stephen did it. He, so he'd do like sort of 25 stories a day, for example, and he'd make about four stories completely free and the other stories you'd get maybe 15% of them. So you'd read a few stories and then it, they, he'd give you a taster of the other ones and you'd want to read the rest of it. So you just, I just subscribed and I think he had some sort of incentive. So he was the original subscription guy uh, and this is in 2000
0: two two thousand three and didn't you gotta get people addicted, I think, to content before you start charging them heavily. I wanna say as well, when if someone said to me and gave me a piece of paper and said, um, you need to fill out like what are some of your strengths in life? Like, especially with regards to this podcast, I would say probably my biggest strength is being able to start on a particular topic and going on a 10 minute journey through four other topics. Each one is connected to the previous one, but by the time we get to the last one, I can't even remember the first topic that started any conversation, and I feel like that is where we are right now, talking about subscriptions for Capital Brief. I vaguely remember we were talking about polls or something, but I think I should stop talking and ask you what we're talking about next, because God knows where this conversation is going to go with another four topics, one after the other.
1: That's that's the beauty of the show. That's why people, certainly my family... Uh, such fans of, of yours. Uh, but I, th- I think on that note, we'll go to a, a super quick 30-second break a- and be right back with our first big story on Atlassian. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days?
0: That's got to be one of the toughest parts of uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't
1: agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Patona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Patona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors.
0: So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Patona and you like them?
1: I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. So you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you, but they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and wholesale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Patona website at patona.com.au and click on Get Started. And we're back. And our next story is on Atlassian. So those who subscribe to the Contrarians LinkedIn page will have seen I wrote a, a pretty long article on Atlassian. I broke down quite a lot of its, it's sort of business. Um, some of the things I really don't like about the valuation uh, of Atlassian. So Atlassian is actually Australia's fourth most valuable business. It doesn't get the publicity probably it deserves because it's, really, it's NASDAQ, listed, it's not listed in Australia. So people know about Scott and Mike because of their other stuff, but Atlassian is really off-Broadway here.
0: Is it the fourth most valuable business, including private businesses in Australia, or you mean the fourth most valuable Australian business listed on any exchange?
1: Oh, I'm not included. Yeah, it's listed anywhere. I, I can't think of any pro. It would be more valuable than. Well,
0: you got Ryan, well, Pratt, you got Anthony Pratt's business. That yeah,
1: but Pratt's business is worth like 30 billion. This is worth a hundred. Oh, that's billion. a good. That's so, a good point.
0: No, no, fair enough. And Gina's right.
1: worth 40. So this is it's clearly the, the only bigger businesses I think is CBA, BHP, and uh, CSL. And these are BHP is a sort of multi generational 100 year institution. CBA is sort of the same, and CSL has just been this incredible business over the last sort of 20 years, uh, since I think it was Paul Paul McNamee. Uh, no,
0: that's I'll stop talking. That's a great point. You've shut me down. Continue. <laughs> uh,
1: so, it's got this inc- $100 billion business, uh, started by a couple of university graduates in 2003 using credit card debt. So, in many ways, an absolutely incredible story. And what Scott, Scott and Mike have done, not just at last year, but they're also very influential on Mellon Cliff at Canberra. very influential on Culture Amp, uh, on uh, Safety Culture. So they've, they've had an incredible influence on Blackbird, on, on the startup e- ecosystem. So I think people probably wrongly take my criticism at Lassian's valuation of criticism of Mike and Scott, which isn't right. Uh, I do disagree on some stuff with them, but obviously they've been incredible business people. But if you look at this business, it's a business that is growing much more slowly as the years go by. So my, my key thesis in the article, for those who haven't read it yet, is if you look at, go back a few years, lashing was famous for not having salespeople. That was a bit of a ruse. They kind of had their party, implementers who were salespeople, but they didn't, they spent very little on sales and marketing. So if you go back um, to when they listed in 2000, so around 2015, 2016, when they listed, uh, they generally, that caught their ARPUs, so their average revenue per user per year is about $7,500. I think that's US, and it cost them about, and they spent about 7,500 US on sales and marketing. So call it a one-year payback period. If you look at now, it's now, they've now got a four-and-a-half-year payback period. So they spent a lot more on sales and marketing, and they're growing exactly the same number of net users, 12,500. So their growth has slowed. So they grew 12,500 users seven years ago when they had a fraction of the users so that the growth is massively slowing and they even changed the way they report. So in the shareholders letters, so they they did used to report how many new users they got. Now they're reporting how many users above $10,000 spend or something like that. So they, whenever a company changes how they report, always pretty concerning. Uh, so one real worry, we one real worry is that they're just not getting new customers. They they are growing revenue still, but that's because they're, they're growing what's called expansion revenue. Can I can I customer.
0: summarize? Let me say a few things before you yeah, launch sure. into it, okay? So well, firstly what what I want to, <laughs> So what I want to first in the air. No. What I want to say firstly is this. This was an outstanding article. And anyone who has got any interest in Atlassian at all, they should immediately read this article. And I'm not biased at all because like it was very nice that it appeared on our LinkedIn page and it got lots of uh, well, the last thing you posted got lots of views, and presumably this will rack up tons of views. This is a really high quality article. You set out the other, th- there's really good factual information in it, set out in an easy way to understand with a thesis that is easy to follow. And so, what I thought I wanted to do with respect to this is just agree on some facts that you've put in here, because I think the facts that you've put in here are, are these are the important facts and they're well stated. And I'm going to double check with you that I've got the facts right, that we're going to talk about and then what i want to do is disagree with some of your contentions on how we should feel about this business based on these facts now as it happens i don't agree with your i don't disagree with your overall thesis about valuation i think it's an expensive business but what i more want to talk about is the way that i think about this business given the metrics that we both agree on compared to the way that you might think about this business. So let me make sure that I've got the agreed facts right. Tell me if you agree with this. I'm just saying this back to you. This was a business that used to be growing new customers. Well, maybe I'll start with this. The best kind of software subscription business at the enterprise level that you would love is a business that every year is growing new customers really quickly is expanding the amount that each customer is spending, so average revenue per user, is able to sign up those customers cheaply enough so that the first year of revenue from that customer pays for the cost of signing the customer up, has a low churn, which means not many customers are leaving every year. And in an ideal world, is actually making a profit at the end of the day and generating free cash. But that is often hard to do as a company, like a subscription software company, scaling rapidly. And your argument is actually Atlassian was really good at doing this in the early days. They were growing tons of new customers. The customers would spend more, and they were a profitable business at a much lower revenue level than today. But if you fast-forward x number of years i can't remember the x number of years that you had said since then eight years
1: so eight about 2013 years. 14 they'll make you money so if you
0: fast yeah and if you fast forward eight years what you've got is a company that has a much r- larger revenue line but it's a company that is not really growing new customers in any significant way most of its growth is coming from selling more stuff to existing customers a side complaint i actually think it's coming from charging more to existing customers charging okay Char- increasing prices can we call that? yeah okay
1: because they haven't really the other quiz i have thing just to, to add is they've got their their core products called jira uh which is kind of a product we've talked about yeah. this in the past it's like a imagine a, a sort of sticky note on a wall when it's an online version yeah, i know your that. high your but high opinion of, of this
0: product is has been very clear oh, in the okay. past
1: no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not negative on G.R. I think it's fine. Okay. I that's a think great it's endorsement. Amazing. Yep. It's, um, f- it's
0: fine, but it's also a big incumbent that's very sticky and hard to displace.
1: Yeah, exactly. Sticky incumbent. It's, um, it's also very cheap, yeah. which is what I like about it. So if you look at there's plenty you know, of – you you You're right, I've sidetracked so
0: keep going, but your complaint is that. physical
1: confluence, which is kind of like a, a, a shared Google Docs business. I, I actually don't like that at all. I find it just – pretty shitty as a user but it's an okay business that they package it with jira to an extent and charge a bit more but they haven't really had a new product since then they're talking about ai and this other stuff but jira was their original really original product almost 20 years ago and that's still their main product they're still their main To use the nike example i'm going to go back to nike again a meant they're like an air jordan one almost and they're still selling that air jordan one 20 years later and, so, and for a slightly bigger price and
0: so if i was going to summarize what you just said their growth is not product led which means new products to existing customers, it's not new customer-led growth, it is price increase-led growth is kind of your view on where a lot of their revenue growth is coming from, correct?
1: I think that's where all that revenue, like, if, if my, my bull case on Atlassian, we'll get to it more, is is that they're a sticky, pro- I agree with you, they're a very sticky product, it's the hassle to change, it's, it is changeable, so it's not impossible to change, it's a hassle, it's much harder to change um, Atlassian than it's changed your running shoe, so there's a massive degree of stickiness, uh, and it's it's pretty cheap. Like if you look at the per seat cost, I don't know what it is, but it's like sort of fifty bucks a seat, or whatever. So it's it's not if you if you go from fifty bucks a seat to one hundred bucks a seat, people probably aren't going to switch for that. So there still is some juice in that lemon to squeeze. So the bull case of Alassian absolutely is, even if they aren't growing new customers, which they aren't, and they could be shrinking soon, there still is a fair bit of price power they have there, I think, which is a, a genuine, which is what cuts.
0: you want in a business. I'm just going to finish off the rest of your facts, which are very brief. So one side complaint you've got is. They're not growing customers, and so what they're doing when they're reporting is they don't want, really want you to see that they're not really growing customers. I mean, they are growing a bit with new customers, but not much. And so what they've swapped to is how many customers are we growing from companies that spend less than ten thousand USD a year, a year to more than ten thousand USD a year? I'll come back to no, it. Was
1: all custom- It was all customers, but it, just in terms of that growth, they grew customers by four point seven percent last year in total. So, 4.7% new customers.
0: Well, that's still growth. Return. That's not zero that's gro- or less than not, zero.
1: would you, let, let's assume there was an expansion revenue, which there is there clearly, but let's assume there was, let's assume you eventually hit the point where you can't keep charging more because customers won't Yeah, how it. do I feel about if, 4.9%? If, in business growing yes,
0: it's not good growth, but I'm just pointing out, I just want to get the facts right. They are growing, but just not by much in terms of new customers. And the end of your complaints are, and despite the fact, that they've now hit revenue of fill in the blank for me. Oh, I think they do about eight hundred million US a quarter. Okay, so despite the fact that they're generating north of three billion dollars of revenue,
1: call cool, call cool. no, actually probably run running okay. four billion
0: now. So yes. despite that big revenue line, this is a company that you would say is no longer profitable and is only generating free cash because it's paying stock op- a ton of stock options rather than paying cash to employees, rather than paying only cash, and so. Really, your your complaints in a nutshell are a business that has largely stopped growing new customers and is increasing revenue on the back of price increases and has reached a, a rate of revenue that is multiple billions of dollars a year, they should be a business generating tons of profitability and tons of free cash at this size. And so that's the encapsulation of all of your complaints about Atlassian, and then that leads to I think this business might be past its prime unless something changes, and why is it valued so aggressively like a company that is all blue sky? And so we should talk about some of the assumptions that you've made based on some of those measures. And so you should talk about, firstly, your complaints about how they're generating revenue growth.
1: Well, it's not really a complaint, as I said before. Like I, I think expansion revenue is a, gr- a great way to grow revenue, and the beauty, and so the strongest argument for Atlassian, if you're an Atlassian bull, is that they do have pricing power and they can keep increasing prices, and it is sticky. So that, that's a good that's a good thing. Uh, I'm, and I'm not what I'm critical of is not Atlassian the business. What I'm critical of is of the valuation of this business because this is a business that's valued. Let's 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 look another. Let's look at how much money could this business make. So. They're currently spending a lot on, call it R&D. So they spend around $2 billion a year, all this is US, on effectively what they call R&D, which is developers, engineers, product managers, et cetera. Uh, this is building new stuff. Probably that stuff doesn't seem to be really generating much, certainly not generating new customers, and it's I'm not sure that's what's responsible for the expansion revenue. So I think a lot of that, call it R&D, could probably go. So they could probably get rid of half that stuff. So you could probably cut a billion dollars out there. So it your might, argument
0: your argument is cuz we're going to talk about here what you're talking about generating free cash cuz a chunk of that R&D possibly the majority of it is being capitalized onto the balance sheet anyway and then amortized onto the um profit and loss and so it might be it's not affecting the profitability of the company as they're spending No, it. I don't
1: think I don't think no I don't think they capitalize that much. I don't think that's an issue.
0: That's more of an Australian um, thing I think by the way.
1: Yeah, just yeah. okay. So what we're talking about there, we've talked about this before. I just want to explain this capitalization thing. We talked about it a lot, but i think most people go, "What the hell are these guys talking about?" So what you can do in Australia, and what we talked about it. Remember we talked about satire, who were the sort of egregious cult. Well,
0: we cul- can blanket cul- say I don't support any e-commerce business that does what you're about to describe, but I do support software yeah. businesses in Australia that do it. So yeah. continue.
1: So what accounting laws, allow, accounting rules allow you to do is. Let's, let's compare this to a, I'm building a factory. So say I build a factory and the factory costs me a million dollars. I put that million dollars in a factory. I've got an asset of a factory worth a million dollars. And accounting rules let me depreciate that factory over its useful life. Could be called twenty-five years. So each year, I will depreciate forty thousand dollars of that factory, and eventually, the value of that factory as an asset reduces over its lifetime. But the original amount I paid, the million dollars, wasn't an expense on my profit and loss statement. It didn't go through my P and L. It was becomes an asset on the balance sheet. And what goes to the P and L is each year is forty thousand. And that's probably fair enough because you've got you built this asset, asset would contribute to to profit over forty years. Putting it in the first year, P and l doesn't actually reflect correctly for, for sort of reporting purposes. So what rules allow you to do as an online business, be it software business, be it e-commerce business whatever, is let's say I spend a million dollars building a website or building an AI program or what or whatever it is it allows me to capitalise that million dollars or, or part of my, doesn't doesn't capitalise all of it, but let's say I spend a million dollars on developers, you can maybe capitalise 20, 30, 40, 50% of that uh, as, as an asset. Uh, you've got the set eyes who capitalise all of it, which is completely wrong, but you can capitalise some of it on the, on the, val- on the balance sheet and amortise that.
0: Because the argument is that, the argument is if someone's building a piece of software, then what you're trying to do from an accounting point of view on the profit and loss, the ideal target of a profit and loss or the objective is to match the revenue you're generating with the expense that it costs to generate that revenue that's kind of the holy grail of accounting profit and loss and the argument for this is to say yes we spent a million dollars on this app but this app is going to be generating revenue for us for the next five years and so actually if we're going to try and match the cost of generating revenue to the revenue we generate we should spread the cost of that over the next five years because and so hypothetically that's good but it's also misused by many companies who are not entirely honest about what and how they should be capitalising. So what you're saying is that...
1: Yeah, yeah obviously, over- if you overcapitalize, if you overcapitalize, you're just shifting out of the out of P&L onto your balance sheet. So that's, that's making your profit look or making your loss look smaller or your profit look bigger.
0: And if you're an investor and you want to be smart about this and figure out whether companies are doing this or not, then you'll go to the cash flow statement, not the profit and loss statement of this company, and you'll look at investment cash flow for this company and you look at all of the money that they're spending to create assets on the cash flow statement and often the bulk of that for a software business because they're not really creating like physical assets if it's a software business or buying physical assets investing in them um, the bulk of that is probably software developers that are creating the asset of the software and that's the way to, to figure out where it's happening and to what extent, largely. Yeah,
1: but that isn't an issue for Lassian, just to say. So, Lassian, as far as I know, don't capitalise really anything at all, or if it is, it's de minimis. But what they do do is pay a lot of their staff in stock, uh, and that, so it makes your cash flow look really good because you're effectively doing capital raises every year from your staff, uh, which is great when the business
0: is going up. Before we talk about they should cut their costs and generate free cash, let's start off by saying... The ultimate objective of a business, although this doesn't necessarily feel like it's always the case with software businesses nowadays, the ultimate objective of a business is to make money for shareholders and pay them dividends. I mean, that's the ultimate objective of a business. And so what if I ask you this question? One of the things that you don't like is that Atlassian has decided to introduce another reporting metric, which is customers with more than $10,000 in cloud re- um spending, let's call it ARR. And you don't like that in the sense because they used to report how many customers they have as a beautiful graph. And now they just seem to report that as a line of text and they've brought in this new graph. And I generally agree with your sentiment in the article, which is nobody changes their reporting graphs because the last graph looked too good. Like you change it because you want to change the keep the narrative of the business and you need a new way to tell it.
1: Because you're trying to hide something. What they're trying to hide here is the fact that new customer growth is basically zero.
0: And so let me give you a flip side to that comment. So what if I said to you that Atlassian may have reached a point where it has started saturating the market for new customers, but it really believes that it's going to go through a next wave of massive revenue growth on the back of expansion of existing customers through a combination of price increases and product-led growth, which means selling new products to existing customers. And what if I said to you that Atlassian believes that – so it has 40,000 customers approximately paying more than 10,000 USD a year to the company – out of 265,000 total customers, so roughly 15%, which I think is actually pretty impressive, 15% of the customers paying more than $10,000. And obviously, that won't be evenly distributed. There'll be some companies paying much more, but I'm going to just simplify this and say, imagine they're all paying $10,000 a year, those 40,000 customers. And what if Atlassian really believes and has reason to believe that over the next five or six years, that average of $10,000 could double and go to $20,000 with minimal additional expense, scalable software business, what that would do is generate another $400 million a year of revenue where maybe they'd keep 80% of it, so more than 300 mil. And maybe they think that's going to drop to the bottom line and that's where their free cash and profitability is coming from. And if they really believed that, then... That would be a smart metric to start reporting because it would provide an insight into – a better insight into the next phase of growth of the business. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but in that situation, don't you agree this would be a good change of metric to, rep- to better reflect the next phase of business growth.
1: I've I've got no issue with well I've got no issue with them reporting that metric, but don't stop reporting the old one. It's my, they, they always use the same graph in the last. No, I agree Every with that. single shareholders letter. It's a pretty minor issue, so I don't want to make too big. It's a it's almost a irrelevance.
0: And most investors, it, I mean, the best way to raise a red flag and make people look is to say don't look over there. And by removing this graph, they've effectively said, oh, don't look over here at this graph. And so everybody is now going to look at hang on, what's their actual customer growth? So I think it's counterproductive. I
1: actually don't think, I'm not sure people are looking at, like I've been clearly wrong on Atlassian for the last sort of three or i I've been a huge Atlassian bear for four years and the market's continually disagreeing. Atlassian is a $100 billion business now almost. So clearly my view is not the prevailing view. I don't want to be too critical of Atlassian itself. Atlassian is doing their thing and whatever. I'm critical of the market and the speculators who have bid up up Atlassian's price. So let's go to valuation now because that was the, The crux of the thesis I was making is…
0: But would you agree if this business was a business that was going to double this average 10,000 on those 40,000 customers to 20,000, or they thought they were going to double a number of… Like they were going to have this massive increase of hundreds of millions of dollars in additional revenue over the next five years with almost no cost attached to it that was going to drop through to cash… Would you agree that would still be a great business today or you wouldn't even think that's a great business?
1: No, well, good business. Any business making $400 million is a good business, but let's just say they did that. So let's say they kept everything, sales and marketing stayed the same, the customer chain, all that kind of stuff stayed the same. They just made an extra $400 million revenue a year. So that, Because at the moment, they're kind of just below – they're loss-making but not materially. So let's call it their break-even now. So let's say they made $400 million a year. They're worth $100 billion. So that's still a P multiple of 200. So even if that happened, it's still a batshit crazy valuation. And I, there's certainly no guarantee that's going to happen.
0: So what do you think will justify a $100 billion valuation? What profitability or what growth, what for you would justify a $100 billion valuation? Well,
1: let's, let's use our current growth levels because obviously – they're If you grow the faster you're growing, the lower, the, the higher the P/E multiple you can get. So Apple trades on a thirty odd P/E multiple, rightly or wrongly, and it's growing at X ray If you start, if you, if your growth stops suddenly, your P/E multiple contracts. So the moment at last, which makes sense, it,
0: which makes sense, but yeah, it does that course. is a bit predicated on a belief that people have that you can actually turn your revenue into lots of profitability and free cash at some point, which is another yeah. co- issue you've got with Atlassian, But just talk about this first one
1: first my my obvious path to atlassian if i was running atlassian which i'm clearly not and would never be asked to but if i was i'd be smashing r&d so they spend two billion dollars i think you take that down to under a billion this is a business that could realistically make you 1.5 billion dollars a year without without changing all that much
0: which is Uh, call that like a 30 35 margin on its revenue which is pretty good which is
1: yeah, which is what it should be doing. As in fact, a I'd say business. it's
0: fantastic it like and making... pretty achievable for great software businesses.
1: Yeah, so that, let's say this is that's that's going to take a big change, but let's say I did that one and a half billion years. So the business is growing at 15, 20%. percent. I probably you could probably pay a multiple of 30, 30 times on it. So that's a call it a forty five billion US business. But that's everything going perfectly. That's getting your expansion revenue. That's maintaining the growth. Uh, that's, that's absolutely smashing in your R and D. That probably doesn't all happen. So what probably happens is if you reduce your R&D spend, you're going to reduce your growth significantly, but you start ringing out some real profitability. So let's say the business starts making a billion dollars profit a year, which is a way more than it's ever made. Let's say it makes a billion dollars a year. You probably put a multiple of 15 times on it. So I think realistically, a $15 billion valuation of this business is fair, maybe $20 billion if you're being generous, $10 billion if you're being critical, depending on the sort of overall market. But to me, in my view, this is a $15-ish billion dollar business, which is still an incredible story. It's one of the most valuable Australian businesses ever, but it's nothing like $100 So that was my point, is that this is still a great Australian story. It's just like the valuation's gone completely insane.
0: But you've actually got two points, which is, one is, I think this business is massively overvalued. But your second point is, I think this this business is being run the wrong way. What I didn't quite, which, and I understand both of those points, and definitely there is, I mean, notwithstanding that NASDAQ is a crazy place at the moment. And people say, well, NASDAQ has bounced back. But as you've correctly pointed out in the past, NASDAQ has bounced back because of the 10 biggest stocks on NASDAQ, largely. Seven, and seven biggest, yeah. Seven biggest. In fact, almost entirely because of that. And so I don't disagree that like there is a global movement now which is just trying to remind businesses that the the idea of business ultimately is to make money. But the thing I didn't understand with your cost cutting and ways to make money is this. In your article, you talked about, the significantly escalating sales and marketing cost on a new customer basis, but then you said, but they can't really cut their sales and marketing cost. And the thing that I didn't understand from that perspective is if they're only growing new customers at like 5%, why do you think they can't cut any of their sales and marketing out of the business? Because I think they start churning. So I think remember that that
1: five four point seven percent. So you think their customer sales, and,
0: yeah. So you think their sales and marketing is really customer success, which is customer attention. I think.
1: Oh, I think it's not. I think it's. I think it's probably more customer acquisition. I think what's happening is there's there's some churn there. It's become a lot harder. Oh, I probably, see. They've also probably run out of customers to acquire to an extent. Like there's there's a limited universe for for SaaS businesses, and they've got a big chunk of the court um, four five hundred already. So I think that may. Have, to an extent, be running out of potential as well. You've got competitors like Monday and other people. So there's there's other competitors out there with potentially cheaper products or as good or better products potentially. So I think, like I don't think these guys are, are morons. I don't think the reason their sales and marketing is, is inefficient is because they've executed badly. They're probably executing really well. I think there's probably market issues. Businesses have this great sort of nascent period where you grow and grow and grow and the market's huge and you're nowhere near tapping out your market. And then it's almost all of a sudden you kind of hit – your market and you hit your cap really quickly and then you become a mature business and then you want to be ringing out profits. A mature business can make lots and lots of money. But I'm, I worry that Atlassian's hit their point of maturity and sort of addressable market and they're not making any money. So the only way they can make money is by changing the way they operate so they stop spending all this money uh, on R&D. They, and I don't know if the R&D money is actually helping them in any way because they're spending $2 billion a year but the product suite doesn't seem to be improving at all. So I'm not sure the point.
0: Well, this is my other pushback that I wanted to make on you, which is that you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to say, they should cut, they should halve their R&D spend, because that will make them free cash, but then it's going to slow down their growth rate. But then on the flip side, you're saying, but their growth rate isn't coming anyway from new products. It's just coming from increasing prices. So actually, I just want to correct you and say, based on your thesis, they could, I'm not going to say they could wipe out their R&D, but definitely your thesis should be they can halve their R&D without affecting their revenue growth, because it's not coming from new products anyway. Is that not your thesis? Well, I mean,
1: that is my. That's exactly my thesis. Yeah, that's but exactly you said that
0: thesis. it would slow down their revenue growth, but it won't according to your thesis. It would be painless to cut 50% of the staff other than the pain of firing people. From a commercial point of view, your argument really is they can cut half their R&D and it will be totally painless to their growth rate.
1: So No, you're right. So I think where, where the problem with the nuance is there is I think what happens to the market realises they're no longer a growth stock. So in my view, they're no longer a growth stock but the market thinks they are. So my point is, Let's stop this jazz hands. Let's get rid of this all this unnecessary cost. Let's stop pretending we're a growth stock. Let's just pretend we're an income stock and let's make some real money now, guys, and stop thinking we're pretending we're still a growth stock because we're not. That's my sort of my point. So I, 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 your criticism of of, my, of me is right because it's a nuanced, complex argument and there's two moving parts. There's the sales and marketing part and there's R&D part, both which contribute to revenue growth. I'm concerned to remove sales and marketing costs because they're already struggling for customer growth.
0: So, Atlassian has said they're going to focus more on customer retention, but I couldn't really see where they detail their churn numbers. I might've missed they it. They
1: talk about net. They talk about just net numbers. So, there's got to be some churn in there.
0: Right. And so, your argument is that 4.9% growth might be 10% growth and 5% churn, for example. Yeah, I'm sure it's something like that. If you really believe this, well, tell me all of the ways you've been wrong about Atlassian for the past three years. I'm interested in that. So, tell me, like, what, what has been your, your, you know, your failed bear experience with Atlassian over the last few years? Because you must have felt good when their share price tanked. I don't mean feel good about, you know, it's not nice for
1: no, no, staff
0: like, and whatever, but yeah. it was vindicating your thesis and then all of a sudden it's bounced back. So, what do you think's going on there? How, can you, how have you been so wrong? I genuinely
1: don't know. I clearly have been wrong if you look at what the market's saying. I don't know why and I don't understand it because, like, nothing like that I've seen has proven me wrong. They're still not making money. They're still not growing. The customer, they're changing their metrics, they're reporting. So nothing has, like, every time I look at these numbers, every quarter I look at numbers and think, oh, yeah, this is sort of what I thought would happen, and the share price goes up. So ultimately, as I think it was, like, Benjamin Graham or someone who said this the market remains irrational longer than one can say solvent, which is why I'm very reticent to, to short ship stocks these days. I used to short 10, 15 years ago and you can get it right. I shorted ABC Learning and I got stopped out at some point and it went bust. But I, so I was right, but I was, didn't make that much money out of it. So it's it's really hard to make, this is very hard to make money shorting stocks. Uh, much easier to make money on the other side of the equation, much easier to just jump on a, on a trend. And, and make a bunch of money on an upswing, which is what so many speculators hedge funds do, which is why I actually love short sellers who are right with that thesis. Because short sellers, A, are capped in how much they can make, but also take a position that's contrary to, we call the contrarians, but take a position contrary to the, to the masses. And
0: so I can see that there are 28 analysts that I can see here that cover Atlassian with recommendations. 14 of them have a buy recommendation on it. Two of them have an outperform, which is basically a buy. So that's 16 of 28, and 12 of them have a hold recommendation. So there is not a single sell recommendation that I can see on the consensus information in front of me around yeah, but,
1: but Brokers basically don't put sell recommendations on until the company's effectively in Chapter 11. So I wouldn't take that. Uh, the fact that there's, there's actually 12 holds is surprising <laughs> and really justifies my thesis a lot because I'm shocked there's 12 holds on there because a hold's really a sell. Uh, so that's actually pretty interesting. I think there should be 28 holds, but the fact there's 12 is interesting.
0: I said, well, so what are you going to do about this? I mean, is this the extent that you're going to do? You're going to basically spend the last three years and maybe the next one or two years just writing about how they're overvalued for these reasons, or are you going to take a position and try and be a hero and watch the share price fall by four-fifths, which is what you're predicting?
1: No, I probably won't. I probably won't take a position, but hopefully someone – in contrarian's uh, listener who might be a hedge fund manager does. But um, no, I think what's interesting to see, I, obviously the one thing I very much do disagree on Scott and Mike with is is work from home. So that's, that's forgetting valuation. We have a, a diametrically, and this week uh, Lashen came out with some, well, I think they, they basically said they had a study, didn't actually give any data out, so it just looked like it was just made up, but saying that people who work from home are more productive. So exactly how they came up with that, I don't know. We very much differ on that and I just find it hard to believe that any business that sort of allows staff to work from anywhere, um, allows staff to have multiple jobs without them knowing, can never be that successful. So that, that's, sort of, that's part of my underlying thesis. I just don't think – I think Scott and Mike, uh, they've got so much money and they've taken out $3 billion each at a business and been incredibly successful, but I'm just not sure there's anybody actually running that business.
0: So as I've said previously, I think the next step for Atlassian is going to be a professional CEO, like the way they brought – Eric Schmidt into Google, although obviously Google was much, 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 much smaller when they brought him in. But I think there's going to be a transition at some point soon, is my guess, to a CEO that can work as a subordinate to two big personality founders, both of whom I've had positive, very positive experiences with, I will add. And so I think that's the next step. I want to finish by saying this, because I knew you were going to raise that they had taken $3 billion each off the table because it's a frequent comment by you and it was also in your article. And so I want to finish with this because I know- That's
1: not that's not a criticism. I know I it's just, not.
0: I'm not. I know it's not, but I know you mentioned it. So I knew I was going to have the chance to say this, which is because there are ASX, there are multiple people, senior people from the ASX that listen to this podcast. And so I want to say this. One of the big problems we have on the ASX in Australia, and I've raised this before, is that it's very hard for founders to sell stock Because when founders sell stock, everybody, it has to be communicated clearly in an announcement, and the entire market views it as a negative signal. Now, it may well be a negative signal. I just want to say it may be. It's not always a negative signal. Certainly, the founders of Catapult have sold down generally at times where it was not a negative signal, but I understand why people view it as a negative signal. There is no way in Australia for a founder to say, too much of my money is tied up in this company. I need to diversify. My view on the company is bullish over the long term, but you've got to let me diversify. And in the US, the mechanism that Mike and Scott have used is a great mechanism where they've effectively said, I'm going to pre-sign that every day or week or month, I'm going to sell X amount of stock at whatever the prevailing share price is. And that way, you can't read into my decision-making because it was made way in the past and has nothing to do with the present. And I think that Australia is desperately in need of a similar mechanism because ultimately I know that founders have asked me specifically what about my experience with Catapult in particular, also now with Robbie at High Pages, what's your experience with founders and the ability to sell down once the company is publicly listed? And unfortunately my answer needs to be it's going to be a bit of a nightmare for you. Investors are going to tell you that you can't, you shouldn't, you know, bad, it's a negative signal, your own directors are probably going to tell you that. It's not an easy thing to do to sell down as a founder with an ASX-listed company. You on board with me about that approach or not? I 100% agree. I
1: think and I, I think you've said this before. I, I think that's totally right. I think ASX should do what the NASDAQ do. I think maybe in, in New York Stock Exchange do it as well. And just to be clear, if I was in Mike and Scott's position, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. So I think that's super smart doing this. So this is not a criticism anyway. This is me saying that probably, Maybe they agree with me because the fact they're selling shares every day kind of implies – I also think it's overvalued. Nothing wrong with the company that you run being overvalued and the fact they're selling into overvalued, good on them. I don't know, uh, but so
0: it's not a criticism. No, but you you always argue with me on this. I'm saying to you, even if they thought it was undervalued, they should be doing this and it would be legitimate because too much of their money is tied up in this one thing and the thing about money is it's – good to help you live your life. I mean, you know what you can do with $3 billion? I'll tell you what you can do with $3 billion. Anything you want and also inadvertently ruin your own life and the life of your family. That's the problem with having that much money. But well, that's, that's the point. I think
1: if you were to say, on your point on getting liquidity, I totally agree. I think someone should be able to take a couple hundred million bucks out or whatever. It's much more than you ever need to spend in a lifetime. The fact they've taken $3 billion out each is what justifies my viewpoint. Like, if you stopped at a couple hundred million, I'd, I'd agree with you. No, but you they've, got three, so and they've got so much money. money up. And, but they've got billions no, no. in Canberra. Like, I know, got, but these guys are some of the richest guys in Australia. Before they sold,
0: I mean, they are anymore. not so, looking to pass this. Uh, by the way, I want to emphasise when I say three billion dollars can inadvertently ruin your family. It's not a comment on these guys in particular. Obviously, I've got no idea about their families, but you know, I've always felt. It's not good to be too rich. In fact, when you start being defined, when your personal identity starts being defined by others based on how much money you have, I think that starts being in dangerous mental health and personal territory. But I want to say this to you. Like, these guys do not want to pass this business on to their kids. That means they have to get out of it. And they're not going to get out of it as a single exit event because it's worth too much money. And so the only way they can get out of it is a progressive, tiny sell-down constantly for an extended period of time I think they should be doing that regardless and I don't think it's a signal that they this feel is- their business is overvalued. Now, you think it's overvalued and I also think it's overvalued, but I don't think you should tar them with that because even if they, even if it was worth $10 billion and they thought it was worth $20 billion, I think they should be consistently selling down, having this much money tied up in that business given they don't want to pass it on to their kids.
1: This is where I kind of disagree with. I, I think absolutely sell to get some liquidity and, and whatever. If you look in the U.S. as an example, most of those founders from, from Gates to Bezos to whoever, to, to Zuckerberg, uh, to Phil Knight at Nike, they actually very rarely sell. And They, they obviously sell enough to maintain a lifestyle and these guys have extremely good lives, but they're not constantly selling like yeah, this. Yeah, because they
0: take dividends because this company pays no dividends at Lassian. So that's why because Phil Knight at Nike – He's like rolling in money from dividends from that business. That's he, why he also didn't have to sell. He never down. sold
1: down before. Pre, Nike was living hand to mouth for two decades. He I know down so before. But can I just make one point on this though? There is a dichotomy there. So you have got Scott and Mike selling every day, and you've got them paying employees in stock. So they're issuing stock to employees and selling stock. Themselves, well, that's a
0: solid point.
1: Which is a, some may call it a mini Ponzi scheme. Uh, I'm not sure they're not running an official Ponzi scheme, but if you look at and it's raised effectively what's now amazing multi-billion about you is dollars. It,
0: no, what's amazing about you is you say this thing that's very smart, which is very common, and then you get me on side, and then the minute you see that I'm on side, you'll say something like, some may call it a mini Ponzi scheme, and I'm like, now you've lost me.
1: <laughs> well, if, you, if, you're, if you're constantly raising money for employees and, and selling shares at the same time, it's, it's not great.
0: But I do like that they pay employees in stock. I love that they pay. I know that you don't like it because stock's overvalued. I know. If
1: you're you're an absentee shareholder, you could be losing eighty-five percent of what you're getting paid. But if if I'm right, if I'm wrong, then fine. But if I'm right, it's not great. No, I agree.
0: It's hard to to retain. So, so I love paying a portion of employees' wages in stock. I think it's especially senior employees. I think it's very aligning. It's good for shareholders, and. I think especially bonuses like short term long term bonuses are great in stock but you're right like if you're paying it in stock and they think that's how much they're getting it becomes a real retention issue especially if it's options by the way if that stock tanks subsequently you have big retention problems which all yeah. of these tech companies had after all of these prices crashed I yeah. agree with you and, I think and we should talk, you, have, uh, you finish what you're saying and I think we got we should talk about something else but finish what you're saying
1: Yeah I say unless you have if if my thesis is right and that and the share price does drop then they've got all sorts of problems because then you've got a bunch of staff who are super annoyed and they, and they've had all it's so so almost you've got to cash if you want to keep the good staff and you always want to keep the, the guns you have got to cash them out so that smashes your PL. so we haven't really seen that play out and maybe it doesn't but there, that is a risk as well but on that note we'll jump to another super quick break and we've got a really interesting story on on the sneaker market that we want to chat about Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with?
0: Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that.
1: We're the same. I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually used them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them at a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Pause, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures. And we're back. And in our final story, a super interesting one about the sneaker market, which has been just a it's a fascinating area. Dear, do, you've done a bit of work on this. Uh, so we've got Nike as just obviously the, the dominant beast US $150 billion valuation, and then you've got, you actually got Lululemon at around $60 billion, uh, but they're kind of different, they're more apparel. Uh, and obviously Nike's long-term adversary Adidas, Adidas at around $30 billion. had all sorts of problems with the Yeezy-Kanye issue. That's a sort of right off a bunch of stock Uh after dumping Kanye, after anti-Semitic comments repeatedly. Uh, and then you've got other sort of also brands like Under Armour, but also some really up-and-coming brands. So uh, there's a brand called Deckers, which owns, among other things, Arg, but their main brand is called Hocker. They're an $18 billion US business. There's also a brand called On, which I think is sort of just a bit less. I think they're around 11 or $12 billion. So you've got the dominant beast in Nike, uh, Adidas, who was – the dominant beast before Nike, uh, and then you've got these sort of up-and-coming brands. So how do you view this market, Adia?
0: So let me talk, give an overview of how I feel about this market and, who, and which, who are the relevant people for us to talk about that's going to be a fun conversation. So the, the gorilla is Nike. You said they're worth $150 billion. They're running revenue of $50 billion, much bigger than anyone else, and they probably have circa 40% market share of like the athletic footwear and apparel market globally. And so, so,
1: Adidas actually runs about half its revenue, about $25 billion, but because it's losing money, it's got a just a much lower multiple.
0: Yeah, Adidas has got big problems. So, that's, let's talk about them as the number two. Adidas got big problems. So, they're the historical number two, and- They
1: actually were the historical number one uh, for a long time. Uh, Adidas obviously founded it in, in I think, 1928, uh, and then they were dominant really till the Jordan days, uh, and Jordan wanted to go with Adidas, as not talked about, but he ended up going- with Nike because Rob Strauss offered him just so much money and that unusual carry, but he was desperate to go with Adidas. Yes,
0: yeah, so, and so we'll talk about Adidas. I mean, they've got massive problems of which one is Yeezy, but they've got other big problems. They're a business in big trouble, and they've just brought in a new CEO recently who was the CEO that turned around Puma, which um, – which is another German company, obviously, right, and was…
1: Well, obviously, and you know the story about Puma and Adidas, right? That's right, two brothers. Two brothers yeah, who had a massive yeah. fight, uh, allegedly, because I think was Addy and Rudy, uh, and Rudy apparently helped the Nazis in World War II, had a big fight with Addy after the war, and then went and founded Puma, which is about a $6 billion business, incidentally. Yes. On the other side of the river of this town, so you've got this town… It's a bit like in Rwanda. They have this, these two town, these sort of half the town it was Adidas, half the town is people. They just hated each other. I think they potentially still do.
0: Yes, well, you know, Adidas obviously is named after Adidasla, who was the name of the her name of the brother. And so, Adidas or Adidas is the right way to say it. Americans say it Adidas. We don't argue with them because they're by far the biggest global market for all this stuff. So they can call it whatever they want. Everybody smiles. So they were historically the big one. Adidas. They've got big problems. I'll touch on a few others quickly, and then we'll provide a bit of it so that. Then there's a brand called Under Armour. They were going to be – they were this big up-and-coming scary brand that were putting mm. Nike under tremendous pressure in their home market of North America, like U.S. Effect, yeah. effectively. They kind of fizzled. So, they're a $3 billion biz, like valuation business today. Was,
1: I think there was some issue with that to restate revenue a bunch of times. There was some potential – I don't know if it was accounting fraud, but there was some real issues there financially. Uh and obviously, the, I think Steph Curry is their biggest name who, who works. With That's them. right. I'm not sure if you, you're a mate of his potentially, but um, but yeah, so they've had all sorts of issues. Under Armour is like an irrelevant.
0: They're thing, kind really. of fizzled, and so like their revenue is approaching you know, sort of circa ten billion. I think it's like probably six or seven or eight billion dollars of revenue. But we don't really talk about them as being a competitive threat to Nike anymore because yes, they had those accounting problems, but really they failed to set the world on fire outside North America. And their star even has waned inside North America. So they were going to, and so the reason I mentioned them, and I'm not going to talk more about them, but the reason I mentioned them is because five or six years ago, if we were having a conversation about who the threat to Nike is, Under Armour would be the first cab off the rank for the emerging threat. And that's relevant to, to remember because, you know, there is heavy recency bias when you're talking about who's going to displace a large incumbent in the market. And right now we're going to talk about some other brands and they're going to feel like they're these big threats for particular reasons, different reasons to Under Armour. But we should remember that we would have had this conversation about Under Armour five years ago. And the other two brands I think it's relevant to talk about today are the brand that you mentioned, um, which is owned by Deckers called HOKA, H-O-K-A. That's an incredible story, that business. And another brand called On Running, which is most well-known because of uh, Roger Federer's involvement, and so let's, you know, start with the big problem that all of these businesses have that Roger Federer turned into an advantage. The big problem is that these are heavy, heavy brand-based businesses. If you want to know what their long-term competitive advantage is, it's brand. That's really what this hinges on.
1: Well, the, um, the Acquired Guy, I listened to The Acquired Pug, you very kindly referred me, that episode on Nike, and I'll give you my views on Nike in a moment, but they talk about, you know, obviously the seven powers, and they talk about really the benefit of scale, and scale and brand are really interlinked. But where, why scale is important here, I actually agree with them on this case, is to get scale. So you want to, eventually, this is the Rob Strausser who was that Nike executive in the 70s and 80s. He's really sadly died, very young. He actually went to Adidas, controversially, and Phil Knight, him, had this massive blow-up. Uh, but Strauss's view was you need to get these 10 pole celebrities, uh, 10 pole athletes. Jordan was obviously the, the first and, and the best, but then now they've got everyone. Uh, and the, the way you get these uh, athletes and you pay the most is by scale. So if you have the most scale, you can afford to pay Michael Jordan 300 million bucks a year and you can afford to pay uh, LeBron James 100 million bucks, all this stuff. Whereas if you look at brand, I think they're right here. Nike and Adidas, even though you'd argue Nike's brand is much stronger, Nike and Adidas, Adidas shoes sell for about the same amount. So, sort of two, three hundred bucks between 300 bucks for both. So, I actually agree. I don't think it's a brand. I think it's a scale business. Well, I'll and tell Nike you why. Has a
0: bigger scale. Uh, so, I, I think. So, I agree with the fact that you can pay more. Maybe the way I'd say it is like this: if you have more scale, that means you sell more stuff and have more revenue and ideally more profitability. Then you can pay better celebrities to build your brand more which will give you more sales, and that's that virtuous cycle. But I I don't think these businesses have real scale benefits relative to each other at the operation and manufacturing level. And the reason I say that is the way that you usually see scale benefits at the operating level is better gross margins. And the challenge here is that all of these businesses are selling billions of dollars worth of stuff. They're not selling billions of dollars of one particular product, which would give you the real scale. And a lot of their gross margins are being eroded by the way they sell. I'm going to come back to that, which is selling through third selling through third parties. And selling through third parties, that really erodes your gross margin because you're effectively selling wholesale and giving away the rest of the margin to the retailer.
1: Just so the margin. I think Adidas had pre-Yeezy debacle. I think Adidas actually had consistently higher margins than Nike, which sort of goes to that brand point a bit as well that if you have a really strict look at LVMH, the classic brand play, they have what, 70% margins or whatever because their brands are so luxury brands are so strong. I'm not and Nike clearly, you can argue maybe Air Jordans are a mini luxury, maybe Viper's a luxury, Viperfly's luxury, but really they're not a luxury brand. They, I don't think Nike has great incredible brand power. It's certainly not brand power translating to high margin.
0: Well so let me so I'm going to talk about margins, but let me tell you the overall the kind of conversation that's going on in this market at the moment in this world so i know this world because i kind of sit adjacent to it and i've met obviously a lot of these businesses at the quite senior corporate level although like not hawker and on running and so um what's going on is the perennial argument which is is nike on the way down so we hear this argument all the time because they're so dominant in the market there's always these brands that are coming up they've got the constant fight with adidas and what's interesting is like Adidas, in my view, is largely fights against itself. And when it's winning, it's a good competitor against Nike. And when it's losing, it's a weak competitor against Nike. But, you know, they're doing their own thing. And um, and so that's the big question is that is Nike under some kind of real threat this time from brands like Hoka and, um, and On Running? And so this is what I was going to say about the challenge that these businesses face. If you want a strong brand, you need great athletes to wear your stuff. And this is what a great athlete costs traditionally. If you want an athlete like Novak Djokovic to wear your stuff, that's $10 bucks a year. And he gets paid $10 million by pretty much any sponsor that wants to sponsor him. The interesting thing about on running, and this is true about – I'll tell you another brand this is true about, but the interesting thing about on running is they've been around for a long time, probably since 2010, I think. And in 2019, they went to Roger Federer, and they said, instead of us just giving you $10 million a year because we can't afford that because we don't have the scale, how about we give you 3% of the company to be our brand ambassador?
1: That's the Michael Jordan deal.
0: And that's what that's what they did. And a brand called Castore out of the UK, I think, did something similar with Andy Murray and is now this really valuable, rapidly growing brand over there and really an up-and-coming brand. And Roger Federer was this athlete that managed to turn – 10 million dollars a year into 30 million dollars a year and he did that and even more he did 10 to 30 by dumping Nike going to On Running and going to Uniqlo and the story is that the Japanese founder of Uniqlo is a massive fan of tennis and so what Federer did is he turned his back on the 10 million dollar a year Nike deal who thought he was crazy but the founder of Uniqlo is a massive tennis fan, and literally paid him thirty million dollars a year. Yeah, it's and so a Roger Three hundred million
1: dollar deal, I think.
0: Over ten years, yeah, for ten years, and yep. so you know, and so Roger Federer has gone and made thirty million dollars a year out of Uniqlo, taken three percent of the equity in On Running. On Running is now an eight billion dollar market cap business. So since two thousand and nineteen, he's made two hundred and forty million dollars out of that deal. This is pretty dramatic, and so what you see now is a business, and this is why people wonder if Nike is in trouble.
1: And that, so that's the, that's an example of a great strategic partnership we talked about before the Jordan. That's one. right. And Roger Federer is another great example. It's, it's a, Roger Federer is the smaller court. He's obviously the, one of the greatest tennis players ever, but the smaller party, and on clearly uh, was the bigger party. But you, I think for a strategic partnership to work, and I didn't talk about this at the time, is the bigger party has to almost fully submit in a way, and this is why I know we've talked to newspapers and radio stations, TV stations over the years. And the bigger party they just is never willing to trust the smaller party, never, not willing to really trust their brand to the smaller party in most cases. But in these cases, On said, you know what, our brand kind of is nothing anyway. Roger's got this incredible brand, even though it's a smaller party. You can be our brand, Roger, and you can get 5% or 3%. And it, that's why it works out well.
0: That's right. And so, you know, they, they let him craft shoes for himself to wear and he really just became... And by the way, every every shoemaker that sponsors an athlete, the shoes that that tennis player is wearing are not the shoes that you buy in the store that have that tennis player's name on them. They're highly specialized to that player's needs. They just look the same as the one in the store. And so the reason people are concerned about Nike is because you've had a, got a business now with falling mar, falling gross margins. And as I said, a lot of that is because they're selling through stores, but also like, Definitely, Nike's margins have fallen like two and a half percent, and they're kind of heading down towards forty percent. So they've got falling margins. They've had fifteen percent sales growth on a constant currency basis, so that's real sales growth. Now that's very but consistent be- over like twenty years. Yeah, and they're still growing. You know, people people talk about them being ex growth. They're definitely they're definitely still a growing business, but their profit went backwards, and so now they are probably a nine or ten percent net profit margin business, but they did have a year of their profit going backwards. And people are looking at Nike and saying, is this business in trouble when you compare with margins of a player like on running, which is running at close to 60% gross margins, purely through the pricing power that the brand is delivering? And, you know, this is a business that is is growing quite rapidly. And Hocker is something similar. You know, Hawker is going to go from Hocker has been growing over the last three years at a rate of kind of circa 60% a year. Mm -hmm. Now, they're slowing now, but they're probably going to hit $2 billion this year for a bit of profit, maybe a 5% margin. And so people are wondering, are these emerging brands at higher prices going to put Nike under pressure? And the last thing I'll say is, and what they're wondering about Adidas is what the hell is the next couple of years of Adidas going to look like? Because Yeezy and you know the anti-Semitic tirade that Kanye West went on and everybody had to rightly drop him that has really caused issues for adidas and i just want to finish by telling you this about adidas this is what their growth has looked like over the last over the because they don't have a full year result but over the last half year result north america fell 16 to 18 percent and that is their big market now europe was totally flat EMEA. all right china was up latin america was up asia pacific was up a bit But Yeezy is effectively wiping out all of the profit of this business. They were so heavily connected to this Yeezy brand that it's cost them more than $1 billion in profit to have this dissolution of the partnership. And so people are wondering, how can Adidas be put back onto a positive track? Uh, Because, you know, their PE now is infinity because they're not profitable anymore. And what's the future of Nike compared to brands like Hocker? Or on running, and before I tell you my view on that, like you know, what are your thoughts on all of this?
1: My thoughts are, I'm actually slightly bullish on Adidas, only because I think it's been just so downtrodden. I like the look of the new CEOs when they're six months. So the share price has recovered a lot in the last six months, but obviously Yeezy was a complete disaster. They've clearly just put too many eggs in that basket. But if you look at the history of sort of Adidas and Nike over the last. 50 years, they've really sort of toot and froed. A bit added Adidas were massive with the Run DMC stuff in the 80s. Then obviously Air Jordan hit hard. Then obviously had Reebok coming in. So these brands tend to ebb and flow a bit. Uh, and obviously based on that, Jordan's been that one – Jordan's been the real driver of Nike's growth in the last three years, bizarrely. This is a guy who – the Air Jordan range came out 40 years ago. Michael Jordan retired himself 20 years ago. And that's still the – I know if you had Last Dance – couple of years ago but the driver of nike's growth has been air jordan and the whole jordan or the jordan range i should say uh i'm so i'm i'm bullish on adidas i think you've got a 25 billion dollar business that's effectively on trading on sort of one times revenue one time sales you've got nike that's trading on three times sales i think there's just a bit of a sort of dog to the dow situation with with adidas on nike i'm probably a bit more controversial i'm I'm actually a Nike bear. Nike's already down 30% off its peak, but that was a COVID peak. It's kind of back to its pre COVID levels or around its pre COVID levels. So it's kind of still at, forgetting the COVID mania, it's kind of its all time highs, roughly, if you take out COVID. Uh, why am I bearish about Nike? Nike is the ultimate. I'm not sure if you've read Shoe Dog or, or obviously watched Air. Nike's and Phil Knight, who's 85 now, is the ultimate sort of underdog story it was he imported the shoes for what became ASICS from Japan that were called Tigers at the time on Tigers at the time became ASICS in 77 it was almost died like 20 times it was constantly almost dying this business and then it eventually listed and had some money and then almost died again and then had Jordan that saved it and then Jordan almost left them and then Rob Strasser left who was sort of Phil Knight's main sort of marketing guy who was really responsible for the architect of Nike's second generation growth uh, but it had this sort of had Phil Knight, had Jeff Jordan, had Strasser, then it had Mark Parker come in. So Mark Parker, I think, started with Nike in 79, and he was a designer. He designed the first Pegasus, which was, you know, Pegasus is that famous running shoe. Uh, and Mark Parker was a long term Phil Knight acolyte. So Phil Knight sort of stepped back, what is it, early 2000s, I guess. Mark Parker came in. Mark Parker then became. Uh, chairman and he's there, it became CEO and I think I think maybe he's chairman now. He's, he just stepped out as chairman. They've got this CEO now called John Donoghue, ex sort of Bain CEO, um, not really a shoe guy, doesn't really excite me, he's an older guy. So you've got this business that was such an entrepreneurial – like Phil Knight's, I think he's, he's was break the law or not break the law but um he had these like sort of he was just he was out there he was pushing the envelope he was the entrepreneur's entrepreneur and then he had all these guys around him uh, who were entrepreneurs entrepreneurs where he had strasser and jordan and all these guys and mark parker who was kind of phil knight 2.0 uh and they've all gone so you've got now you've got the corporate guys in there and corporate guys and, go, and it's no longer a founder phil knight's 85 he's worth 45 billion He sort of stepped back he's not i don't He's even involved at all anymore. So as you know, I've got a bias towards founders uh, f- for, for obvious reasons, but this is no longer a founder-led business. I think the founder spirit has almost completely drained from Nike. So I, what I, I think it's a big corporate now and you know my views on big corporates. I think this business will just slowly dwindle uh, and the, the margins stuff you talk about, it just, it's just, I think it just lost its edge and Hocker and On have that edge and they will continue to er- erode this big corporate beast and I think mm-hmm. it will continue to drop. And I think it could drop 50, 60, 100 billion.
0: All right. So I'm happy that I can finish with a complete disagreement with you on this. And by the way, I don't think <laughs> it was Phil Knight that said the, uh, my business plan is to break the law. I think you might be thinking about El Capone, but like anyway. No, let me, it wasn't exactly right, though. I'll get the exact term, um, thing in a second. Let me do, do tell you very quickly my views, But and let me start with on running, because it's an easy one for me to cover. So on running is um, got $2 billion of revenue, let's say. Do I think they can double to four bill? Yep. Do I think they can make a 15% net margin because of their higher pricing? Yep. That means I think they can make $600 million of net profit. Do I think that would justify their $8 billion valuation? Certainly. I think that probably is a $9 billion or $12 billion valuation. So I think all of that's fine. I just think the execution risk on doing what I just described is too great to be paying 99 times PE right now for on running. But if they can execute that, then I think the investors will make good money. I think the risk-adjusted return on that, You know, it's not investment advice, my personal view on it is, the risk-adjusted return is too high. I also think that one of the reasons their margins are so much better than a Nike margin is because Nike is a 40% market share everything to everyone brand. And I don't think that there is a market of $20 billion of revenue with the price of shoes that on running is currently charging and the apparel that they'll go into. So I think they've cherry-picked a very nice part of the market that has very nice margins, and I think that eventually as they try and, you know, grow past $10 billion of revenue, they might find that they have to start moving into lower price stuff. That's what I think the challenge with On is. Well, that wasn't really my well. – I wasn't talking about On, I talking No, about Nike, I know, so. I know. I just thought I'd cover On running. And, so and, so and quickly, is very catch- similar to that, by the way. Hockery is a very similar story in my view to that. Their numbers are very similar. They're just inside Deca and I think they, they and on running have got lots and lots of similarities in terms of their revenue, the market, the kind of customer they're chasing, the margins they've got, and, you know, the challenges they're going to run into as they keep growing.
1: I, I don't disagree with that. But my, Phil Knight's principle was break the rules, fight the law. And that was what I love about Nike and Phil. Like, it was just such a – that is an entrepreneurial – that's, that's a classic entrepreneurial. And Nike's don't have that anymore. I'm, I'm guessing that's no, no longer a rule at Nike.
0: All right, I'm getting to Nike. I'm going to f- by the way, Break the Rules, Fight the Law could easily also be Uber. It could also be Airbnb. Yeah, that's the same ethos 100%. of those businesses, right? 100%. I think they might also be Break the Law, by the way. So <laughs> that, that, could, that could actually be their ethos. Now, the thing that I love about Nike and Adidas that gets me excited about them in terms of their margins is actually this. Nike today sells, let's say, roughly 50% of its stuff through its own stores and website and app. 50%, pretty close to 50%. And that is remarkable and that is very good for margins. Now, I don't think that's going to 100%. But I think it might go to eighty over time. And like God, Footlocker, can you imagine the relationship between the Footlocker CEO and the Nike CEO? Well, this is one of the, the challenges.
1: It, because it's actually the channel stuffed into the. It feels like they over they've made too much inventory, made this short term thing, and they've had to increase the third party sales. So they haven't been able to sell it themselves.
0: Well, by the way, if you're talking about inventory, since you've raised that, Nike's inventory is basically unchanged at about. Five or six billion dollars, which feels appropriate for yeah, a fifty they billion dollar stuff business. and sold it
1: for discounts, which explains the margin drop and the third party thing. Uh,
0: but you know, Adidas has got ma- has always had massive inventory problems. They've got about the same level of inventory as mm-hmm. Nike does for half the sales. Like, yeah. th- they've always had m- yeah. more inventory on hand or in the recent past than Nike. But that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about. I think over time, maybe seventy five plus percent of Adidas and Nike staff might end up being sold through their own channels, and that will do great thing for their margins. And by the way, they call it direct-to-consumer, which I, I don't disagree with that title, through their own stores and their own e-commerce. Adidas is 44%. Adidas' biggest problem is once you take Yeezy out of their mix, they're actually slightly negative for e-commerce, period over period, because Yeezy is a brand that was sold almost sure. exclusively through their own channels, especially e-commerce. And so, they're going backwards on e-commerce once Yeezy is out, but they're definitely going forward on their own retail. And so, I think over time, Adidas has got big problems. Maybe they'll fix them. I think they probably will. I think Adidas, is you're taking a bet on another Adidas turnaround, which might be a good bet and getting through the Yeezy problems. And it might be the brand low point with investors right now, given what's happened with Yeezy and they've lurched into loss-making territory. But I think what you've got with Nike is a business that is trading on 18 times earnings, that's growing its revenue at about 15%. That's making about 10% margin, net margins, but went backwards for a year, but I think will end up going forward. I think they are a great brand. I think their long-term trajectory is more and more stuff will, be in, it will end up being sold through their own channels, which will improve their margins over time because they get to eat the retail margins. I think Footlocker. it's unsurprising to me that Footlocker Locker has been pushing Hocker and On Running and all of these brands because Nike is basically saying, we've had a great relationship and I want you to continue to stay in the relationship and be loyal to me. But by the way, I'm going to try and end this relationship or diminish it as much as possible over the next d- decade. I think Nike might be a business that conforms to um, a Charlie Munger view of the world, which is that 18 times earnings for this business is not cheap. But if you want to buy a business of this quality, then you need to pay for it. And I think this is fundamentally a very high-quality business. Let me finish by saying they spent $5.5 billion over the last 12 months effectively buying back their own stock. And so, you know, this is certainly – I mean, you could say that's to prop up the share price and it might be. But I think that that will be useful to earnings per share as this business, I think, keeps growing.
1: Can I just make a quick point that – they made about they made about five billion net, so I think you must be looking at a pre-tax. So their the PE is like thirty-one, so it's it's not eighteen. At eighteen, I think, it's pretty good value. At thirty-one, I don't think it is. So, um, oh
0: no, you're right about that. You're right. It's a thirty-one, and that's you're right. A five billion net, which is about the ten um, yep. percent net margin that I was yep, talking exactly. about. That, that's so right.
1: So I, I think on that basis, well, well, we might disagree slightly. I think Nike is is certainly still overpriced. I think Adidas probably is a bit of a diamond. I think Adidas feels like Nike in nineteen eighty-four me but i think we're gonna have to we're gonna to, to it's been an incredible episode love chatting about all this stuff i've got to jump off because i've got to take the kids to dinner um it is now 6 30 in fiji uh but we we'll, can't wait to speak next week thanks again to all our amazing listeners uh and for referring recommending giving us all your lovely comments we we appreciate everyone uh and can't wait to speak next week dear
0: yeah absolutely enjoy the rest of fiji
1: thanks thank you for listening to the contrarians with adam and adir If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.